We just want to welcome you to Regen. Thank you for being with us on this Good Friday. Uh, we are so excited, even on this day of remembering Jesus' death, to be together with you. We do hope that you find yourself uh, interrupted by the love and grace of Jesus even tonight as we remember his sacrifice for us um, and all that that means. So I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to uh, jump into worship. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you um, for the gift of your Son, who you sent um, to die for our sins so that we could know you, that we could be reconciled with you, so that we could be interrupted by you. And so, Lord, I pray tonight as we sing together, as we hear from your word, as we um, are just together with your people, that we would be um, not only reminded of your sacrifice, but that we would be filled with gratitude for it and for just a sense of your overwhelming love for us that would go to any cost to know us, to find us, and to keep us. And so we just ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Jesus, you are, as always, worthy of our affection and our attention. Jesus, tonight we gather in the shadow of your cross to plumb the depths of a love that Paul said is too high and too wide and too broad and too deep for us to understand. And yet you invite us tonight to come and be rooted in that love. And so come and grab hold of our tumbleweed hearts that we might root ourselves in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. One of our, one of my favorite things to do these days is to read to my son, Jack. And we do that almost every night, more nights than not. Uh, the routine is I give him his bath and we put him in his PJs. And then while he is having his last feeding of the night, I read to him. And lately we've been reading the Psalms. We're about halfway through. Uh, before that, he heard the book of Hebrews and parts of First and Second Samuel. And before that, uh, we were reading one of the many, many books that he got as gifts. That's what we wanted. We wanted gifts as books for him. And so uh, our biggest prayers that are, well, one of our biggest prayers, I guess, is that our son would read our biggest prayers that he would know and love Jesus his whole life long. But if he could read while doing that, that would be good. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so one of my favorite books has quickly become this book called The Runaway Bunny. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's been around for a while. It's 75 years old. So, you know, not quite as old as some of you. Uh, and, you know, and uh, The Runaway Bunny, it, it, the beginning of it goes like this. It says, once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I am running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. Now, the rest of the story goes on 
just that way. The little bunny comes up with a way to get away from the mother bunny. And the mother bunny says, well, if you do that, then I will find a way to come and get you. So he says, I will become a rock on a high mountain. She says, I will become a mountain climber to come up and get you. He says, I will be a bird and I will fly away. And she says, I will be a tree that you can come and nest in. He says, I will be a boat and I will sail away across the sea. And she says, then I will be a wind and blow you back to me. And as I read this story for the first time and I got to the end, I closed the book and I whispered to Steph, I said, this is a story about me. This is a story about us. This is a story about Jesus and a love that chases and pursues us. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. C.S. Lewis says that if there is a story that we love, if there is a story that strikes us deeply, it is because it reminds us of an older and truer story, and so is the case with the runaway bunny, because we are, all of us, runaway bunnies. There is inside of us this hunger and this thirst and this restlessness for something else, this hunger and this thirst and this restlessness that we cannot quite explain, nor can we uh, fully escape it. And, And often we notice it in small ways, Uh, For my 30th birthday, I decided to use my birthday money and buy myself something that I had been wanting for a very long time. I bought myself an Apple Watch. And I wore it every day for about two weeks. And then about a month and a half went by, and Steph noticed that my Apple Watch was on my dresser collecting dust. And she said, do you not really like the Apple Watch? And I said, I don't not like it. I just don't love it. This happens to us all the time. It happens to us in far more dangerous ways. It happens when we find ourselves in a loving marriage, but suddenly a coworker begins to seem very attractive to us. You're in a job that you love, but you can't help but wonder if there's something more. C.S. Lewis says that if there's a story that hits us deeply, it's because it reminds us of an older and truer story. And so tonight on Good Friday, I want us to look together at that older and truer story, the older and truer story that gives the story of the runaway bunny, that gives a story, the story of our lives its shape. And that story is found in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's, Genesis is a Latin word that means beginnings which is fitting because the story of Genesis is the story of just that. It's the story of beginnings. It's the story of God creating the world. And over a period of six days, the poem says, at the very end of it, creating the best, saving the best for last, Adam and Eve, people that he says are created in his image and in his likeness. And Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, which is kind of pictured as this mountaintop garden in a place where heaven and earth intermingle and come together. And God invites Adam and Eve not only into a covenant relationship with him, but he also imparts to them sacred responsibility for the care of his creation, for the care and rule of his creation. And Adam and Eve in the text are full-grown adults. They are big people, but they are also innocent like children. They have an innocence to them. And so like children, they need to be protected. They need 
boundaries. And so the boundary that God creates for Adam and Eve is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve could range throughout the garden. They could eat whatever they wanted except of this one tree. And Adam and Eve are fine with that until this happens in Genesis 2, 25 and chapter 3, verse 1. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. This is the Hebrews writer. It's his way of saying, Houston, we have a problem because they're nude and the snake is shrewd. And then this happens. The snake says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may, eat of any tr- any, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, if you read it carefully, if you're paying careful attention, you notice that what God says and what the serpent says and what Eve says are all different. They're, they're all different. The serpent frames the question in a way to get Eve to state God's commands in her own words. And as she does, she blurs some important nuances. She adds her own words to it. God didn't say you cannot touch it. He said you cannot eat it. And as she blurs, as she blurs these nuances, as she brushes over some words, it opens the door to the serpent's next line of questioning when he, his next path forward, he says, you will not surely die. That is exactly opposite of what God had said. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent plants this this, this, this seed of fear and worry inside of Eve's mind, and the fear is this, even though God has promised to care for you and love you and protect you. What if he's actually holding out? What if there's this good thing that God is keeping from you? In this moment, he plants a fear inside of Eve and inside of Adam, and it's a fear that has stayed with us, and it is a fear that says, if I obey God, I will not be happy. If I obey God, I will not be happy. And this fear has clung to us ever since. Because here I am obeying God, but I'm sick. Here I am obeying God, but I'm still single. Here I am obeying God, and my kids are a mess. Here I am obeying God, and my five-year plan isn't working. We feel this fear, and we can't help but wonder if our true happiness is elsewhere. This right here is the source of our hunger. This is the source of our thirst. This is the source of our restlessness. We fear that if we obey God, we will not be happy. We fear that if we obey God, we will not be taken care of. We fear that if we obey God, we will not be protected. So we have to find our own happiness. We have to find our own protection. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to vigilantly protect those we love from harm. This is the source of our hunger. This is the source of our thirst. This is the source of our restlessness. And it is this fear 
that causes Eve's mouth to water for something she has not even once tasted. It is this fear that causes Eve's eye to twinkle as she looks at the fruit and sees that it is good to eat. It is this fear that causes her hand to move toward the fruit. It is this fear that causes Eve to take hold of it in her hand. It is this fear that causes her to begin to pluck it from the tree. And in my mind's eye, can't you see as Eve pulls it, there's resistance. It's almost like the tree itself is fighting back against her and she plucks it out. And she, it's this fear that makes it makes her bring it to her lips. It is this fear that causes her to take a bite. It is this fear that causes her to hand it to her husband who takes a bite himself. And then, and then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig, fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. They haven't even swallowed the first bite when they realized something they haven't noticed before that they're naked. And Eve sees in Adam's eye a lust and an animal need that she has never seen there before. And Adam sees in Eve's eye a belittling, condescending evaluation that he had never noticed before. And they felt exposed and vulnerable and disconnected and ashamed and they covered up their nakedness as fast as they could their hands shaking from the adrenaline as they sewed together these fig trees and then and then they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden verse 8 says the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord god among the trees of the garden and then there at the edge of the garden a sound that had never scared them before, but did today. It wasn't calm. It it wasn't peaceful. It was rushed. It was hasty. It was intense. And they ran and they hid. And from that moment, this moment far out of memory, from that moment, every person everywhere has has been running and has never, ever been able to stop. From this moment, Every person everywhere has been hiding and never, ever been able to come out. Since this moment has been, this has been our inexplicable, inescapable pattern. First, the fear. If I obey God, I will not be happy or safe or protected or successful or loved or known. Then the hunger, the thirst, the restlessness, and finally the run, running to find what will satisfy and hiding from God hiding from the God who will take from us this thing that we have found to satisfy us for the moment. And the Bible's word for all of this is sin. The prophet Jeremiah says, My people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all, cracked wells that can hold no water water at all. This is us abandoning the one who can truly satisfy and digging well after well, cistern after cistern, and no matter how deeply we drink of it, it leaves us thirsty and dry and empty. It turns out that the story of the runaway bunny is an old, old story, a story that started in a garden called Eden in a time that has fallen from our memory. But here's the thing about the story of the runaway bunny. The story of the runaway bunny isn't just about a bunny. It is not just about a bunny who keeps running away. It is about a mother who keeps 
chasing. It's about a bunny who is pursued by a steadfast and unfailing love. And so too is Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is, is the story of the first runaways, but it is also the story of love and affection that is always moving toward us, always moving nearer to us, always trying to find us, always pursuing us, always seeking us. And so Genesis 3.8 says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Why did they hide themselves? We actually talked about this last Sunday in our gathering, this hymn that you might have heard when you went to church with your grandma, that he walks with me and he talks with me. I come to the garden alone. And we think that's what Genesis 3 is talking about, that Adam and Eve had these regular strolls in the cool of the day with God. It doesn't say that they did this often. It just says it happened this one time. But John Walton, a Hebrew scholar, says of this verse that instead of reading it as the sound, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it should be translated, they heard the roar of the Lord moving about in the garden in the wind of the storm. They heard the roar of the Lord moving about in the garden in the wind of the storm, and they hear this storm, and they hear this wind, and they run and hide because it's scary. They think God is mad at them as he comes rushing into the garden as fast as he could, but he he doesn't come rushing in to yell at them. He comes rushing in the room to find out what's wrong, just like a parent goes running into the other room when they hear their child scream. God's rushing to the scene as fast as he can to see what's wrong. And when he arrives, God calls out three little words. He says, where are you? Where are you? Do you think that God didn't know where they were? This is God moving toward a scared and shivering Adam and Eve. He's just calling their name and waiting for their reply. This is his way of checking in on them. It's his way of saying lovingly, come out, come out, wherever you are. There's so much tenderness in this part of Genesis 3, like in verses 10 and 11. When, when God yells out, where are you? Adam and Eve come out of hiding, and Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? There's sadness there. If you're a parent, this might be calling to mind imagery of conversations you've had with your kids. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The rest of Genesis 3 is God working to bring order to the chaos that has now broken into his creation. Because as Adam and Eve take of that fruit, there is not just a personal consequence, there is a cosmic consequence. Something is fractured at the very core base code of the way the world is. And so every time you and I have a moment where we think, this is not the way it's supposed to be, every time you and I think this is not the way it's supposed to be, that thought, that emotion finds its beginning right here in Genesis 3 the cosmic consequences of Adam and Eve's fall. But, but don't miss that in this chaos, in the midst of this chaos, that God does two things. God, in his tenderness, moving toward Adam and Eve, he, he makes a promise. 
and he offers a blessing. The promise is in Genesis 3.15. As he curses the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you, snake, and the woman, and between your snake offspring and her people offspring, and her people offspring will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. There's a promise that the snake will be crushed once and for all at some point in the future. The blessing is what God gives Adam and Eve there on the threshold of the garden. As Adam and Eve are exiled from this place, as God puts cherubim, guardian angels of a very special class behind them so they cannot enter, the text says in chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. As God exiles his beloved into this harsh world, he would not send them out naked. And so with his own hands, God makes for them garments of animal skin. And the early church, when they preached this text, imagined that as, as Adam and Eve stood and as God put put the garments on them that they could see over his shoulder the steaming dead carcasses of the animals he himself had slaughtered. Sin has always demanded a blood price. And so Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden clothed in skin that is still warm and still sticky with blood. Adam and Eve leave the garden But what does not leave them is this fear and this restlessness. What does not leave them is this desire to run away. What does not leave them is to go in search of happiness and protection and power and prestige from places other than God. And what does not leave them is the God who pursues them in loving kindness and mercy all the days of their life. So Adam and Eve leave the garden and God follows. Adam and Eve give birth to sons, and Cain slays his brother Abel, and God is there. God is there when a man named Abram hears a voice that says, get up and leave your father's house and your father's country and go, therefore, to the land I will show you. God is there when Abram leaves the land that God has shown him and goes to Egypt and pretends his wife is his sister, almost ending his life. And her life. God is there when he finds a coward named Jacob sleeping alongside of a river and wrestles him to the ground saying, you have striven with God and man and won. He is there in the burning bush when the murderer Moses watches his flock on the far side of the desert. He is there parting the waters so his captive people Israel can leave slavery behind. He is there in the water of the rock that quenches Israel's thirst. He is there in the manna from heaven that sates their hunger. He is there when the walls of Jericho fall and the prostitute Gentile Rahab walks free. He is there when one leader after another, when one judge after another fails to bring deliverance to his people. He is there when Hannah prays desperately for a child. He is there calling that child by name Samuel. Samuel, he is there when Israel says to God their king, give us a king like the other nations. He is there when Saul, the half-hearted king, makes a sacrifice he shouldn't 
important. He is there when David rapes Bathsheba and covers it up by murdering her husband. He is there when Solomon, drunk on too, on too much wine and too many women, forfeits his kingdom. He is there when one monarch after another monarch fails to rule his people in righteousness. He is there when his kingdom splits north and south. He is there when the northern kingdom is all but destroyed by Assyria. He is there when the southern kingdom is exiled into Babylon. He is there when they return and they weep that their temple is but a shadow of what it once was. He is there when Nehemiah builds his wall. He is there in the prayer and intercession of priests. He is there in the preaching of prophets. He is there in miracle and wonder and mighty act, and yet they keep running. One of the most powerful parts of this little book comes at the end. When exasperated that his mother keeps up coming up with better plans than he can, he says, well, fine. I will become a little boy and run into a house. And she says, if you become a little boy and run into a house, I will become your mother and catch you in my arms and hug you. If he becomes a person, so will she. This is incarnation. This is Christmas. After chasing and running after us, God ends the chase by keeping his promise, his promise that he made to Eve. Her offspring, a virgin named Mary, conceives a son, and she called his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He came and embraced our humanity he became like us, like it was, and then like it was so many generations ago, offered a fulfilled blessing on top of a kept promise. Because Jesus lives a perfect life, becomes for us, and becomes for us a better sacrifice. A sacrifice that once and for all wipes away the allure and the enticement of all of these lesser things that send us running. Jesus sacrifices himself and provides for us garments not of animal skin, but his own robes of righteousness, so that by faith we are no longer hungry, we are no longer thirsty, we are no longer restless, and in the eyes of the Father we are approved. Instead, he beca- and he becomes for us the promise fulfilled, the snake crusher, as all the evil in the world rushes on Jesus on Good Friday, the snake bites off more than it can chew. You know, there's these YouTube videos where you can watch a snake swallow a cow and then the cow burst out from inside. That, my friends, is Easter. The snake crusher comes and keeps his promise and offers us one grand blessing, robes of righteousness. And because he is the snake crusher and the ultimate sacrifice, he alone is what can satisfy, for it is Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, and our snake crusher who says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It is Jesus who on Good Friday presents himself to us as that alone which will satisfy. We are, all of us, runaways. We are restless. We are hungry. We are thirsty. We are afraid that if we obey God, we will never be happy. 
But when we see Jesus, we see a faithful love and an unending mercy that will pursue us all the days of our life and into forever. And when we see Jesus, we understand the words of Augustine who said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. On Good Friday, Jesus issues a call to all the runaways and to all the restless. And he says, come to me, all of you who are weary from running, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come away with me and learn the unforced rhythms of grace, and you will recover your life. Let's pray. Jesus, this Good Friday, you want to end our running. And you want to satisfy us in the morning and in the evening with your unfailing love. And so we offer you our restlessness and our hunger tonight. And look over our shoulder and see a love chasing behind us, a love that will never let us go. Amen.